0: Hey, you're listening to Green Dreamer Podcast, which is supported by our listener patrons at greendreamer.com support. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. To help us process the difficult recent events of police brutality against Mr. George Floyd, which is part of the larger continued institutionalized racism and injustice embedded into our society, I wanted to bring back this crucial past conversation with Mark Charles, who is a dual citizen of the United States and Navajo Nation and is running as an independent candidate for the President of the United States. The reality is that our systemic injustice, including against our fellow non-human living creatures and the earth, has roots that go far beyond the policies that we have today and strive to change. And there's just not a better conversation to sit with in this time to be able to gain clarity on how we got to where we are today and what it means for us going forward. So, again, this is a special replay, and you can listen back to the end of episode 180 for Mark's full final five tips. For now, though, Green Dreamer, if you're ready, here is Mark Charles.
1: Well, you In the Navajo culture, when you introduce yourself, you always give your four clans and we're a matrilineal people with our identities coming from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage. And so in my introduction, I say, translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My father's mother, my second clan is Toa Hegrini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsin Biketina. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totechini, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. In the Navajo culture, knowing your family, knowing where you come from, uh, is vitally important. You know, I, I often contrast it where when you look at most Americans, if you were to ask your average American on the street, who are you? Most often they would give you your profession. Um, I'm a teacher, I'm a student, I'm unemployed, I'm so on and so forth. And when you ask most native peoples who they are, we will usually respond by telling you our relationships, who our family is and who our relatives are. And that has a big impact on how you view the world. You know, when you view the world kind of through your professional life and your career and your, your job, or when you view your life through your relationships and through your family and through the people who are around you, those are two very different ways of looking at the world. And uh, I, I have found uh, specifically that uh, viewing myself through my relationships and even being very intentional to introduce myself no matter where I go and even no matter what context I'm in, whether it's an indigenous context or a very Western context, when I introduce myself relationally, as I just did here, it helps to Change the tone and even set uh, set the table or set the set the tone for how the conversation is going to go. One of the most, uh, I would say, sustainable practices are uh, sort of things that help shape who I am today and how I how I interact with and view the world the way I do. Is about fifteen years ago, my family and I moved from Denver, Colorado, where I was the pastor of a church back to the Navajo reservation. And we lived for three years in a very remote section of our reservation. We were six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road. We lived with a family that wove rugs and herded sheep for a living. We, um, The community we lived in had no running water, no electricity. And uh, we moved back there because I grew up in a, in a border town to the reservation. And I grew up um, near my Navajo grandparents, but also in a very Western world, we really wanted to experience firsthand the life that my people, most of my people grew up in and the environment that they were surrounded by. And so we moved back there. And one of the traditions of our Navajo people is you wake up in the morning and you run or you walk towards the east uh, and then you greet the sunrise with your prayers. And while I lived there, I began the habit of watching the sunrise every morning. And I would go outside of our Hogan and I would, I would stand there as the sun rose and I would, I would, I would be in a posture of prayer. Uh, sometimes I would sing, other times I would pray. And, you know, for most Western people, you see the sunrise a few times a year. Maybe you see it on Easter. Maybe you see it when you have an early flight and it's always beautiful. It's always breathtaking to watch. But there's something very different when you watch the sunrise day after day, week after week, month after month, and eventually year after year. And you see it move north, uh, in the winter, and then you see it move back south again in the, in the, um, in the summer, you see the days get longer, the days get shorter, you see the, the birds migrating, you see the flowers blooming and you kind of watch this. And as this happens year after year, you know, you begin to, to, to kind of dwell within that space even more. And what happened for me is because in the Western culture, there's such a, a need to control your environment whether it's through this, your schedule and the, the, the alarms and the schedule that you set, or whether it's through science and, and industry or military to control your environment and to be in control of things. And in the indigenous worldview, especially the Navajo worldview, where time is seen as more circular and you're not near, worried near as much about your schedule as you are about completing tasks and things can tend to be much more fluid and you can focus more on relationships and things like that. Uh, by watching the sunrise every morning and watching the seasons pass and the, the flowers bloom and the birds migrate and it comes and goes, and over the months and years, it gives you this deep understanding that ultimately you're not in control. And there is a process, there is a system, there is a creator that is moving and at work and is doing things, and ultimately you are not in control, And at first that's kind of frightening because the Western culture trains us to be in control, but eventually it becomes incredibly freeing. And it begins to change your paradigm and even your worldview going through that process. And we lived on the reservation for 11 years. And for 11 years, I watched the sunrise probably between four and six to seven times a week. It did some wonderful things to my soul and it gave me a deep appreciation for the natural world around me. It helped me understand my place in that world, steward it, to, to live in sustainability within it, um, to respect it, to honor it, you know, living on the reservation in the high desert, one of the first things we had to teach our, our children was water out there because you haul your water every day. Water's not a toy. It's not a plaything. <laughs> you, know? you, mm-hmm. you need to respect it because it, it's, it's something that is sacred and it's, it's precious and it's heavy. And <laughs> you, have to, you have to truck it in or carry it in. And, you know, it's, it's not something you just waste without thinking about it. Now living in D.C. where I see the sunrise much less frequently, because of the buildings and because of the schedules and because of, uh, the, the, just the clouds and the, the, um, weather here on the East coast, I see the sunrise much less frequently here. But having those 11 years under my belt of watching the sunrise almost every morning has grounded me in a way that I wish everyone could have that kind of a grounding because it, it gave me a respect for the natural environment that I didn't have prior and that I want to make sure I never lose.
0: One of the primary messages that you're amplifying across your work is this idea that we, the people in the United States within our constitution, has never meant all the people. So much so that you said in your recent presidential announcement video that we should not be surprised that women earn less than men to the same dollar, that our prisons are filled with people of color, and that corporations have earned the same rights to free speech as individuals, and that super PACs can fund unlimited amounts to politicians. You emphasize that none of this should surprise us because it shows that our Constitution is working. So how did you personally come to this realization that our incest, that our systemic injustice today goes all the way back to our Constitution? And can you illuminate this picture for us with some examples?
1: Yeah, so it actually goes even deeper than that. So in the 1450s, 1452 actually, Pope Nicholas V, um, the Catholic Pope, He wrote the first um, series, uh, he wrote the first papal bull in a series of papal bulls between 1452 and 1493. And collectively, these papal bulls are known as what's called the Doctrine of Discovery. They said things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. Now, these Papal bulls are essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are less than human and the land is yours for the taking. So this is literally the doctrine that allowed European nations to go into Africa, colonize the continent and enslave the African people because they did not believe them to be human. The same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world, which was already inhabited by millions and claimed to have discovered it. Because if you think about it, you cannot discover lands that are already inhabited. That's not as stealing or conquering, colonizing. The fact that to this day, our textbooks, our monuments, our, our proclamations from our government officials, they identify Columbus as the discoverer of America this reveals the implicit racial bias, which is that native peoples, people of color are not fully human. So this doctrine of discovery is a systemically white supremacist dehumanizing doctrine that, that dehumanizes people of color or anyone who's not actually white European Christian and male. Now the challenge with this doctrine is what happened with it. So in 1763, King George essentially drew a line down the Appalachian Mountains here in North America, and he said to the colonists who were here that they no longer had the right of discovery of the empty Indian lands west of Appalachia. So this upset the colonists because they wanted access to those lands. So a few years later, they wrote a letter of protest. In their letter, they accused the king of raising the conditions of new appropriations of land they went on to, to, to state in their letter that he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages. Now, they signed their letter on July 4th, 1776. So, literally, this Declaration of Independence that begins with the words, um, all men are created equal, 30 lines later refers to Native peoples as merciless Indian savages making it very clear that the reason our founding fathers used this inclusive term "all men is because they had a very narrow definition of who was actually human. Then a few years later, when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution, which began again with these inclusive words, we the people of the United States. Well, just a few lines later in Article 1, Section 2, this is the article that Defines who is and who is not a part of this union, who is and who is not covered by the Constitution. When you read Article 1, actually, when you read the entire Constitution, the first thing you have to note is it never mentions women. And that's important because if you read the entire Constitution from preamble through the 27th Amendment, you will find that there are 51 gender-specific male pronouns who can run for office, who can hold office, even who's protected by the Constitution. Second, it specifically excludes natives in Article 1, Section 2. And third, it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. And so who's left? Well, white landowning men is who could vote. For me, it was a transformational shift in my paradigm. When I read the entire Constitution, I counted the number of he, him, and his. I noticed a complete absence of any kind of female pronoun. I saw specifically how natives were excluded, Africans were counted as three-fifths, the 13th Amendment, which states um, which states neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, shall exist within the U.S. We've never abolished slavery. And I realize the Constitution doesn't exist. It was not written to protect my people. It doesn't exist to protect people of color or women, or people who don't identify themselves in the binary gender definitions, doesn't exist to protect African Americans. It was written, the Constitution was written to protect and define the rights of the white landowning male. And once I was able to see that and acknowledge that, it actually was incredibly freeing. I I no longer had to kind of mentally protect the Constitution hoping it was saying something that it didn't actually mean. And so if you, you know, in his final state of the union, president Obama was talking about the need for our nation to have a new politics is what he called it. And he referenced the the constitution. He said, we, the people, our constitution begins with these three simple words, words we've come to recognize now mean all the people. Now that sounds beautiful. And he got applause for that line. But as I was sitting there listening to him say that, I was thinking, when? When did we decide this? When did we decide we the people means all the people? The founding fathers didn't mean it. Abraham Lincoln, if you study his history, he was a blatant white supremacy who ethnically cleansed the Cheyenne and Arapaho from Colorado, the the Dakota and the Winnebago from Minnesota, and the Navajo and the Apache from New Mexico to make way for the Transcontinental Railway. He definitely did not believe that we the people meant all the people. The civil rights movement, as good as it was, did not get us to the point of we the people meaning all the people. President Trump definitely does not believe we the people means all the people. So while it's a beautiful sentiment, we've never actually decided this. As a nation, as a collective, we've never sat down and said, we want we the people to mean all the people. Because if we did, if we the people truly meant all the people, then we would actually abolish slavery instead of just redefining and codifying it in our 13th Amendment. We would actually make the language of our Constitution inclusive, instead of just specifically using gender-specific male pronouns. We would actually get rid of, in 1823, there was a Supreme Court case, Johnson versus McIntosh, It's two men of European descent. They're litigating over a single piece of land. One of them got the land from a native tribe. The other one got the same land from the government. They want to know who owned it. The case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. So the court has to decide. This is the John Marshall Court, one of the greatest Supreme Court justices in the history of our country, people think. And he had to decide what is the legal precedent for land titles. And they reference that the principle is that discovery gives title to the land. And then they go on to reference this doctrine of discovery and conclude that natives who are here first, but are savages, we only have what's called the right of occupancy to the land, like a fish would occupy water, a bird would occupy air, and Europeans have the fee title to the land, the right of discovery to the land, and therefore they are the true title holders. Now, this precedent And the Doctrine of Discovery get referenced by the Supreme Court in regards to Native Americans and land titles in 1954, 1985, and most recently in 2005. And the Supreme Court case in 2005 that referenced the Doctrine of Discovery and concluded that the Oneida Indian Nation of New York did not, was not able to reestablish sovereignty over their traditional land. Even when they repurchased those lands on the open market, the justice who referenced the doctrine of discovery, who wrote the opinion, and who delivered the opinion was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the most progressive liberal voices of dissent on the Supreme Court. And so this is how this doctrine of discovery has deeply, deeply influenced the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and our Supreme Court cases And it's affected the, the worldview of the nation. So even in 2016, President Trump, when he was running, he promised to make America great again. Now, Hillary Clinton responded to that by saying America's great already. At the Democratic National Convention, President Obama jumps into the fray and says America's already pretty great. And Cory Booker, who's back in 2016, was an up-and-coming, a rising voice, progressive voice within the Democratic Party. And as he's addressing the Democratic National Convention, endorsing Hillary Clinton, in his speech, he actually references the fact that the Declaration of Independence calls native savages. He, he acknowledges that the Constitution excludes women, and he acknowledges the three-fifths compromise. But then he ends that section of his speech by concluding and telling the audience, but these things do not detract from our nation's greatness. In a debate during the general election, Hillary Clinton came back to this theme and she said, America, not only is America great, America is great because America is good. And Donald Trump stopped and he paused and he said, I agree with her. I agree with everything she just said. So they both agreed our past, our history, Our foundations, which excluded women, excluded Natives, counted Africans to three-fifths of a person. Our history, which included the enslavement of African people and the genocide of Native peoples. They both agreed this history, this past, these foundations were great. They disagreed if we were great in 2016. Donald said no and Hillary said yes. See, we were duped. Most people thought the 2016 election was about racism versus anti-racism or equality versus inequality, but it wasn't. What we were actually debating and deciding was Did we want Donald Trump to work to make us explicitly white supremacist, racist, and sexist again, or did we want Hillary Clinton to work to keep our racism and sexism, our racism and white supremacy implicit? This is the challenge we face as a nation. Because these things are embedded so deeply in our foundations, they actually have become bipartisan values. Where even one of the most liberal, progressive voices of dissent on the Supreme Court, as recently as 2005, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, would reference the doctrine of discovery and conclude that Native nations could not reclaim traditional sovereignty over our lands.
0: Based on your understanding, um, do you think there were also implications for how we view, value, and treat our lands based on the values that the country was founded on? Or otherwise, how do you see white supremacy relating to uh, our degradation of our soils, land, and natural world today?
1: Absolutely. My father, um, who was a part of a, a study committee, this is maybe eight or nine years ago, um, this was with the Christian Reformed Church, and he was a part of a study committee, and they were looking at um, environmental issues, and they were looking at climate change and global warming and these issues, and he had become aware of the doctrine of discovery. I think it was through a book written by Stephen Newcomb. Um, I think that's where he learned about it, but Even if he hadn't, Stephen Newcomb, who is a a fantastic author and a very leading voice on educating our nation regarding the doctrine of discovery, wrote a book called Pagans in the Promised Land. And this book highlights how this Doctrine of Discovery has basically infected our legal system and our our, our social systems here in the U.S. It's affected our worldview, and uh, it's one of the, the, the forefront books right now that's out there regarding the Doctrine of Discovery. I highly recommend it to anyone who has a chance to read it. Um, and so as my father was in these meetings, and they were talking about the role of the church, and this is a white evangelical church, in climate change. And my father said to his study committee, he said, well, the reason that this nation doesn't know how to take care of the environment is because they have a doctrine of discovery. You see, the doctrine of discovery sets up a relationship that exploits and profits from the entire natural environment, whether it's the dehumanized people that they import as slaves, are the, the native peoples who they, they um, ethnically cleanse so they can have the land to the actual environment where they, the, the relationship with the natural world for the white landowning Christian male under the doctrine of discovery is one of exploitation and profit. And so that worldview, the whole sense of, of stewarding the land is not about living sustainably within it. It's about how do you extract the most profit from it and so this is one of the challenges that we face as a nation is it's not just we have some, some bad policies. It's that we have a worldview that's been shaped, that's been framed, that's been formed by this doctrine of discovery that leads us to believe, to have this deep-seated belief that the role is to exploit and profit from the environment instead of living sustainably with it. Um, and so then the environment becomes either something you exploit or something you don't touch and you pre- you just, you only preserve it. You know, I remember watching a documentary and I don't remember the name of the documentary, but it was about, well, I think it was one of the Athabascan tribes, um, up in Alaska. And the, the leader of this, of the people up there was talking about their relationship, their, their sustainable relationship with the caribou. And they believe that there is a piece of, of the human heart in the caribou heart and there is a piece of the caribou heart in the human heart. And so every, every spring, the caribou would migrate north so they could calf. And then in the fall, they would migrate south so that they could, they could graze and, and live in the winter. And the, the people, he said, we would never hunt the caribou when they were migrating north. And he said many environmentalists loved us and applauded us and said that's so great. He said, even if our if our people were starving, we had famine and we weren't able to to feed ourselves, we still would not hunt the caribou when they moved north. And he said a lot of environmentalists love that and you know applauded that. But then when they moved south, we would hunt them without remorse. Not to destroy them, but again, they depended on the caribou for their daily living. This is how they got their nourishment and their food. And so when they came north, after they had calved and they could hunt them in a sustainable way, that's what they would do. And this helps understand some of the difference between the the native mind and the Western mind, where in the Western mind you either exploit something until it's completely gone and then you move on to something else. Or you preserve something and you never touch it. Mm. And in the, in the native worldview, there's a sustainable, there's a, there's a relationship between, yes, we, we need the caribou because they nourish us and they provide the blankets for us during the winter. And they, they, you know, they, they, we need the caribou, but we also have to deeply, deeply respect them. And this is why we never hunt them when they head north because they have their calves. And if we kill a mother with her calf, we're basically killing two lives and only getting the benefit of one. This is this is the, the relationship that the West has by and large lost with the natural environment. It's either something you exploit until you destroy it, or it's something that you preserve and you never touch it. And there's been this loss of that there is a relationship, uh, a sustainable relationship that allows both to move forward in a healthy and in a good way.
0: It definitely feels like it's been really hard to find an ongoing balance and an ongoing relationship with nature within the dominant views of even uh, the environmental movement.
1: Yes. And I would, I would argue a lot of that is because, you know, one, one of the stories that I, I tell to help people understand this, when we were living in the Hogan and I was learning how deeply marginalized our people were, and how the the rest of the the nation, we basically, we were completely off the radar of anything on a national level on the reservation. And this was making me very upset and very angry. And I was trying to understand how to describe this to people who were not native of what it felt like to live on the reservation and be a part of this nation, but be completely marginalized from it. And I said to them, I said, it feels like our native communities are this old grandmother who has a very large and a very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in their bedrooms, in our bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture. They're eating our food. They're having a party inside our house. Now, they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later. And we're tired. We're old. We're weak and we're sick. So we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most, that causes us the most pain, is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand, and simply says, thank you, thank you for letting us be in your house. Now, some people would say that's way too simplistic. You need so much more than a thank you. Well, to say thank you requires a shift in your paradigm. See, right now, I would observe That our nation is dominated by 300 plus million undocumented immigrants, people who never asked for, nor have they ever been given permission by the indigenous peoples of this land to be here. And they run around acting like they own the place. Most of them came from Europe. And our indigenous communities, 6 million of us about, give or take, we are treated as unwanted guests in someone else's house. And what we need is we need for a reversal of these roles. I think this is at the heart of our nation's problem, which is we have a reversal of roles. And we need, in some very real and practical ways, this 300 plus million group of people to understand that they are guests in someone else's house. And we need our indigenous peoples to stand up and reclaim our space as the indigenous hosts of this land. And that's what I see happened at Standing Rock where you had for the first time in history even, tens of thousands of native peoples, hundreds of tribes coming together, committed to the teachings of our elders, committed to prayer and peaceful protest, in a unified voice saying to this nation, you cannot drink oil and water is life. This was the indigenous peoples in a very unified way, trying to tell this nation, You have to live here differently. You know, when what we have is we have, again, hundreds of millions of people who've left their lands, they've left their stories, they've left their creation stories, they've left their communities, they've left their relationships, and they've come here seeking some sort of promise of prosperity. They've never asked for, nor have they ever been given permission to be here. They have no idea why the mountains lie where they lie. They have no idea why the rivers flow where they flow. As a result, they live here like someone lives in a hotel room where you don't pick up after yourself and you don't worry about the dirty towels or the dirty sheets because someone will come in behind you and clean up after you. Meanwhile, we have our six million indigenous peoples and our creation stories take place here. These stories tell us why that mountain sits over there, why this river flows over here. And these stories exhort us, even demand us to live here sustainably. And this is this is the reversal of roles we need. This is where we need our indigenous peoples to step into our role as the host of this land to teach the people who have no stories here why this mountain sits over there why this river flows over here, to share our connection to this land and to train them to live here sustainably.
0: On the podcast, we've been exploring a lot with thought leaders in a wide range of fields, you know, what it'll take for us to spark systemic change to be able to thrive in harmony with the earth and realize true environmental and social justice. But while we discuss how we can change the system, it sounds like you think we have to go even further back to examine and perhaps restructure the guiding principles that continue to shape all of our political decisions and uh, our social system. So do you think this means that we can't just we can't fully change our society for the better just by tackling the system alone, and instead that we actually have to make foundational changes, perhaps like within our constitution, and what would that look like?
1: Absolutely. And and this is why in my announcement video, I framed my campaign as an 18-month dialogue. Because of our simplistic two-party system, it turns every discussion binary, and usually neither side is interested in solving the problem. They just want to blame the other side for it. And so we have these binary screaming matches at each other. And the way I describe it is when, when you have a house that's built on a crumbling foundation, you're going to get cracks in your walls. Your floor is going to be uneven. Your windows are going to become misaligned. And this is what's happening to our house. And our binary two-party system is screaming at each other about what color paint to paint over the cracks in the wall, what kind of carpet to relay on the floor, and what kind of windows to put in the crooked windowsills. But nobody is going down into the basement to examine the crumbling foundation and make an assessment of how that needs to be fixed. See, most Americans would like to believe, they do believe, that the United States of America is systemically racist, sexist, and white supremacist in spite of our foundations. I would argue the United States of America is racist, white supremacist, and sexist because of our foundations. We don't know how to take care of the environment. There's nothing in the Constitution, if you read the entire Constitution, there's nothing in there that states we have a collective value for life. And the underlying assumption is one of exploitation and profit. And so, again, this isn't just about adding a new policy or doing something slightly different. If we don't deal with the underlying worldview and actually make adjustments to the foundations, we're not going to solve the problem. And so this is where, in, in my campaign, I am I'm framing it as an 18-month dialogue because I want to use the entire 18 months between now and November of 2020, of 2020. I want to use this entire 18 month to teach this history. And as I teach the history to show how this history affects the environment we're living in today. And then as I lay out and roll out my policies. To help them understand how this isn't just about changing this policy or reenacting this law, but it's about going in and making the proper adjustments to our foundations so that we actually have a foundation that can support the house we're trying to live in. And so it is deeply problematic that there is nothing in our constitution that states we have a collective value for life. This is why corporations can get sued for not maximizing the profit of their shareholders. But they, we need extra regulations to make sure they don't destroy the environment. Because the assumption of the Constitution is that exploitation and profit is the goal. And there's nothing that states we have a collective value for life.
0: Well, to come full circle and close off here... What do you think we can do as individuals to help spark change for social justice and a common respect for our earth at the very foundation of these issues?
1: Yeah. I am advocating that the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender and class. A conversation I would put on par with the Truth and Reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda and in Canada. I would call our truth and conciliation, because reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony, and clearly that's not accurate. And I think we need one sooner rather than later. There's a a native leader from the Dene Nation in Canada, his name is George Erasmus. And he says, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community if you want to build community says you have to start by creating a common memory. And I think that articulates the heart of the problems we face as a nation, which is we do not have a common memory. We have a majority culture that has a memory of discovery and expansion, opportunity and exceptionalism. And we have women, communities of color, members of the LGBT community, African-Americans, Native Americans who have the lived experience of stolen lands, broken treaties, slavery, Jim Crow laws, segregation, internment camps, mass incarceration, boarding schools, ethnic cleansing and genocide, families separated at our borders. And there's no common memory. We have to find a way to teach this memory to teach this common memory, to create this common memory so that we can have better community and we can find a way to move forward as a nation in a much more healthy manner. And I'm convinced millennials who are now the largest voting bloc in the nation, they outnumber boomers. Millennials who understand at a deep level that the system isn't working. This is why the gig economy is rising up being driven by millennials because they drowning in debt from college with no jobs. And so everyone's working two or three different gigs, trying to make ends meet. You can't afford a car so you drive on Uber, drive for Uber, you can't afford a house and so you rent it out on Airbnb. You know, this, they under, the millennial generation understands that the system is not working. And the system creates these colonial divisions, whether it's political parties, religious denominations, socioeconomic lines, um, gender identity. There's all these divisions within our society. And millennials have a huge value for pluralism, much more than any other generation in the United States in our history. And My message to millennials is with your vote and your understanding of the need for systemic change, you can actually help enact this change. You can help bring about this change because you actually have the the voting power to move, bring people into office who are willing to enact these types of changes. And so I, this is why I'm running right now in 2020, because of the rise of the internet and the ability to have a national, even a global audience for the price of a library card. And that window's not gonna la- not going to stay open for long because of the deep oppression and injustice that communities of color and women and the LGBTQ and, and other communities are well, well, well aware of. And because almost regardless of race, not entirely, but generally across racial bound, racial boundaries or racial lines, the millennial generation understands that the system is not working. I think we can actually have a political movement to enact systemic change and get there democratically. And that's what I'm working towards.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time with us and for this conversation, which I'm sure will spark a lot of deep reflections. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you and following your journey. So where can we go to learn more about your presidential campaign, find information on your upcoming book, Unsettling Truths, and follow and support you online?
1: Yes, thank you. So my website for my campaign is markcharles2020.com, M-A-R-K-C-H-A-R-L-E-S. 2020.com and uh, my announcement video is on there as well as a TEDx talk I gave about uh, the Supreme Court case um, Uh, the opinion written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg is on that website and ways people can donate to my campaign as well as volunteer and just hear about the schedule I'm keeping and where I'm going to be next. Uh, And then I have my personal website, which is wirelesshogan.com W I R E L E S S H O G A N.com. That website has a lot of resources as I've been learning about the doctrine of discovery and coming to the conclusion that you see on my campaign website That you see on my campaign website, they all come from the things I've been learning and exploring on my personal website, which is WirelessHogan.com. On social media, I'm very active on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook, and on YouTube. On um, YouTube and Instagram and Twitter, my username is wirelesshogan. And uh, on Facebook, my username is Mark Charles Wireless Hogan. People can follow me there. They can stay connected with me there. I'm most active on on Facebook, but I'm also daily on YouTube and on uh, Twitter and, and Instagram as well.
0: Green Dreamer, thank you for tuning in to this special encore of our past episodes 179 and 180. There's not a more pertinent time to reflect on everything Mark discussed here in this episode regarding the foundations of our social and environmental injustice that really warrants attention and needs to be addressed. So if this conversation has moved or inspired you, please do share it with your friends and loved ones so we can help to amplify Mark's message and hopefully spread and further this important dialogue together. To close off here, I would love to invite you to take a mindful moment for yourself and enjoy The Fruitful Darkness by Trevor Hall. When I look back your knows he's gone